Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Miles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription. 12 books handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one wherever they are in the world. Finally, you can become a friend of Shakespeare and Company by joining the association we set up to get us through a difficult few years. Membership gives you access to exclusive online content, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Find out more at friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. At the heart of The Making of Incarnation, Tom McCarthy's fifth novel, is the quest for Box 808, an object missing from the archives of time and motion pioneer Lillian Galbraith, that, if her normally sanguine notes are to be believed, could change everything. It's a quest that spans most of the planet and the whole of the 20th century and beyond, as our civilization hurtles towards the current age of mass observation and big data, and that draws in characters of diverse specializations, such as legal researcher Monica Dean and motion capture consultant Mark Defoken, each of whom are tasked with getting to the bottom of what secret, if any, this missing box holds. All the while, the science fiction epic Incarnation creeps towards completion, the fastidious process of rendering its groundbreaking visual effects occupying server farms deep under the streets of London. Beyond, or rather as part of, the mystery at its core, the making of Incarnation asks some of the most pressing but also most confounding questions of our age. Questions such as, how much will we ever be able to understand the forces that drive the universe and how much meaning should we ascribe to them? Will the drive for efficiency inevitably strip away our humanity? What are we left with that is particular, peculiar, and that belongs to us once our lives are fed into the churning data maelstrom? And if everything could be planned and plotted down to the minutest detail, what happens when, inevitably, there's a glitch? Those unfamiliar with Tom McCarthy's work are likely to be left delightfully reeling by the interlinked vortexes of his narrative, while those who have followed him since his groundbreaking debut remainder through Men in Space and the Booker shortlisted Sea and Satin Island will be gratified to see that in the making of Incarnation, the literary ambition and philosophical scope of those works continue on their exponential trajectories. Tom McCarthy, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Hello. What I would like to begin with, and I don't think I've ever begun an interview um, in this way before, but is referring to something that you say in the acknowledgements of the making of Incarnation, um, which is that the book benefited from start to finish with the willingness of various technical experts to submit their wind tunnels, water tanks, mocap workshops, gate labs and post-production studios to my scrutiny. Now, one thing I think readers will um, discover almost immediately in the book is how meticulously researched the book is, or at least the book feels. Um, now, in the past, I've interviewed writers who've kind of, when they've talked about their research, have said, oh, you know, I only do enough as I need to be convincing, or, you know, I take, I take what I want and discard what I don't and things like that. Whereas I have the impression with The Making of Incarnation that the, the research was not only extensive, but also was a kind of a crucial underpinning of, um, of the book and the ideas that, um, that, uh, that you explore within it. So I suppose my, my first question is really, 
how that research weighs upon your writing? Well, um, the thing about doing research is that you, I, I have found that the what, what it uncovers is often incredibly poetic. So, for example, when I was writing my last but one novel, C, um, there's a whole section in, in which the protagonist is a aerial observer above the battlefields of mm-hmm. World War One, and um, and I, I, I sat in the Imperial War Museum doing research and found out that these observers would face backwards in their planes, just like Walter Benjamin's Angel of History, mm-hmm. and all the terminology they used was just you know error of the day and <laughs> all these phrases were were just wonderful and so it was with this novel too you know i started i started doing research into motion capture contemporary motion capture and and discovered that you know the holy grail of all motion capture is solved skeleton mm-hmm. because you don't just want the way someone's clothes moves or even their skin you want the kind of the bones beneath it solve skeletons. You know, people are li- li- like T.S. Eliot's Webster. They're looking and they see the skull beneath the skin or um, ground truth for, for zone um, warfare or aerial zone surveillance or um, all these wonderful and incredibly dark and, like I said, poetic kind of um, terms come, come out of it. So, so I, I kind of let the research leads me but I start. I did have an idea I wanted to write about bodies in motion mm-hmm. and choreography and um a friend called Ruth McLennan an artist years ago had shown me this little picture of a, a kind of 1920s worker with a sculptured track in front of her and her hand was running along it and and I said to Ruth, like, where did, where did you find that? And she sent me to the Institute for Industrial Psychology at LSE in London. And I discovered Lillian Gilbreth and then discovered she went to school with Isadora Duncan and Gertrude Stein. <laughs> so, so all these kind of constellations that are incredibly rich came out of that. But I guess the core idea was already, well, not the, you know, not, I don't want to use the word idea, the core kind of fascination with, with a particular moment, embodied moment of, of, of a body in motion was was mm-hmm. already there and when you say um body in motion are you talking specifically about the the human body because of course you need to talk about like the solved skeleton and motion capture and that's and that's what we think of but one thing that we we find in the, in fact in the opening chapters of the making of incarnation is um this kind of overlapping of different disciplines whether that be um uh, the as you said the motion capture or the um, I can't quite remember the technical term for it but the kind of it's not an air tunnel but the kind of the water tunnel the sort of the mm-hmm. uh, the measuring of the kind of the movement or and the effect of of waves of waves yeah so well, yeah was it was was the principal interest the the human body and then that sort of expanded out to this more to I guess the term bodies in the more kind of um, complete sense meaning sort of like you know, sort of uh, bodies in the kind of the physical mm. sort of atomic sense. Well, I I think I wouldn't even make a distinction. The thing about mm. the human body in motion is it it is machinic, uh-huh. <laughs> um, and and this is what Lillian Gilbreth, for example, um, 
the, 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 the early to mid 20th century kind of industrial time and motion pioneer that's so central to this book, or at least its backstory. This is what she really revealed. But before her, there was Etienne Jules Merret in Paris, who was, his mm-hmm. title was Professor of Organized Bodies. It's a completely oh. Deleuzean title. <laughs> and he, you know, he really revealed the machinic nature of, um, of, of, of human motion. Um, and of course, this comes at the same time as mass automat- automatization and cars and cameras and machine guns and typewriters. So human bodies kind of take their take their place among these other these other technologies of of motion. But there's there's I mean choreography. You know, this just this. I guess at the heart of the book is it's not just my fascination with a body in motion. It's it's a kind of staging of that fascination. So there's always someone watching a body in motion mm. or someone or a group of people thinking about the ways in which we might break down and reconfigure and represent bodies in motion, which I think is a very classical um, thing. I mean, it goes all the way back to like Ovid and, you know, here I will sing of bodies in a state of transformation or, or think of the earliest, you know, Greek artist painting a discus thrower mm-hmm. on the side of a, of an amphora. I, I think this is a, or, or virtually anything in Proust, you know, his uh-huh. obsession with the way, you know, the Duchess of Gamantes takes out her umbrella or in Tristram Shandy, those whole diagrams, yeah, but, uh, yeah. you know, the, the track, the Gilbrethian light track, Uncle Toby's handmade because he takes his uh, handkerchief out. <laughs> so I think this is, um, this is a kind of strand that's, that's run through lots of the kind of interest uh, literature that I'm interested in. Do you think um, that that's something that has, I guess, from the sort of the 20th century onwards and particularly up to today with the, sort of the the world of sort of big data that we that we live in something which has maybe sort of bust out of the sort of the the aesthetic considerations that the sort of the poets and the novelists and the artists and the dancers and choreographers might have had in this and become something which has come to has taken on a kind of a, an interest for industrialists and computer programmers and the like no i i think it was ever thus i mean uh-huh. Meret, for example, who I mentioned a moment ago, who was really active in the 1880s and 90s, exactly exact contemporary of Muybridge, um, he was hired by the French government after France had lost that war with Germany in, in 1870. And there was a sense that, oh, man, the French youth, they're, they're screwed, you know, they're, yeah. they're just sitting around reading poetry and smoking absinthe <laughs> and stuff. Whereas those Prussians, they're all properly militarized. They're acrobats and soldiers and athletes. We need to reinvent the French body, you know, as, as, as a balletic kind mm. of uh, regimented, machinic assemblage. Um, and, and, and he did these, so he pioneered these techniques that were astoundingly beautiful and, and it had a huge influence on artists like Duchamp. Think of woman descending a staircase. It's, it's just come straight out of Meret or lots of the painting of the futurists. Um, and in fact, lots of these artists hailed Meret as, as, as the great artist of modernity. And he always rejected that, said, no, I'm a scientist. You know, I'm mm. interested in the way a bird's wings move as it locomotes through the air yeah. or the way that a fencer thrusts. Um, so, so I think, and of course, you know, in the 20th century, you, you get this co-opted into the, into the world of, of the assembly line with mm-hmm. Lillian Gilbreth and her studies of, 
of, of again the kind of the choreography of, of of the hand of a of a chocolate or soapbox packer as she does the same repetitive mm-hmm. movement five hundred or a thousand times a day on an assembly line. But she herself points out Gilbreth that that this kind of culture of studying bodies and rationalizing um, social processes was can be found in the Egyptians or Babylonians mm-hmm. and, and they have visual records as well. So I, I think, you know, this this kind of triangulation between um, uh, dance, sport, war and art <laughs> and mm-hmm. or aesthetics or literature, which I think um, you really see with Gilbreth. I mean, mm. she went to high school with Vesadora Duncan and Gertrude Stein, right? Mm. It's the... the, the and Jack London as well. And Jack London. Yeah, he's yeah. the kind of outlier. I feel like, you know, the, it's incredible. They were all at Oakland High together. Uh-huh. Oakland was this big industrial centre. I figure, I, I feel like he, he kind of stumbled around drunk through all these woods, <laughs> looking nostalgically for some imagined 18th century, mm. some lost 18th century. And these three women just... Meanwhile, just strode out and invented the twentieth. I mean, they're the, mm-hmm. he's, they're the interesting ones. Um, yeah. And again, their disciplines so so linked. You know, dance. Um, you know, think of Stein's prose. It's all about rhythm and repetition. It's very machinic. You know, mm-hmm. and and in fact, foot. The term foot in poetry as a basic unit of measurement is is a straight transposition from from dance. You know, the, mm-hmm. the basic unit, the movement of a, of a foot of a beat. And Gilbreth, who herself studied literature and was really into Dante all her life, mm-hmm. La Derita Via, you know, the straight way, the straight path. I'm sure that kind of gave rise to her notion that every action has its true best way. And the and by studying all these workers, she was trying to kind of, you know, turn factories into this giant ballet where everyone was using La Derita Via, which of mm-hmm. course is more profitable. But I, but I think there's a there's a deep aesthetic sensibility behind it. Yeah. I asked earlier about the kind of fidelity to to research and sort of how you let that sort of uh, impact or not upon the sort of the 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 the, the project um, of the of the novel. Um, and I'd like to sort of come back to that on the subject of Lillian Gilbreth because um, I, I admit I hadn't um, heard about her before reading this novel. And actually, and actually, because I tried to resist any sort of googling before uh, I'm done with it, was sort of uncertain if uh, she was a uh, a, a real historical figure or an object of pure creation um, and ha- have not yet kind of investigated her enough to know to what extent you um, you play with her, to what extent you, you turn her into, a, into a, a fictional character. So could you just talk a little bit about sort of your, yeah, about, about how it felt, I guess, to kind of take this uh, influential, important figure and to draw her into a novel? She was stupendously famous in in her time, and and now she's completely. Although she was eclipsed by her husband, who mm-hmm. with whom she did work, Frank Frank Gilbreth, um, but he took lots of the credit for work that was clearly hers. Um, and um, but then she fell into complete obscurity. But she basically invented the world we live in now to mm-hmm. a large extent. We're all living inside a giant. Gilbreth black box. So she made these boxes that kind of traced the action. And because she'd filmed it in stereoscope or, or photographed it with slow exposure, she could reconstitute mm-hmm. it in as a scale of one to one. And and um, this is basically, I, I, I mean, this is the predecessor of the world of Google and Uber and 
Mm -hmm. everything being motion tracked and every transit being algorithm plotted and and so on and so on we're all we're all living in the black box um and uh but i you know her her own life was fascinating she had 12 children um it was just you know i mean it's an amazing kind of story but sure i embellished loads i mean she didn't actually itemize every single box she didn't have this idea that there was a perfect a, a one single perfect movement but it, it, it it's kind of implicit in the in the um in her platonic kind of mindset i just i just extrapolated a bit and over over stated it to make a case <laughs> bannon's is completely invented the soviet um scientist mm-hmm. just yeah. that um that idea of the kind of the one um the one perfect uh movement and her getting sort of uh drawn into that idea maybe obsessed might be a bit too too strong a word it makes me think of another moment in the the novel when um somebody's talking about the way that uh scientists who study or write about um the concept of perpetual motion and often you know begin kind of by wanting to debunk it often end up getting kind of drawn into the uh to, to, to that idea itself do you think there was an element of that to Lillian Gilbreth um whether you're Lillian Gilbreth or the uh the Lillian Gilbreth you met during your research yeah it's kind of like it's like um Oscar Wilde's portrait of WH some crackpot theory about Shakespeare's sonnets that mm-hmm. whoever explains it doesn't believe in it but the person they explain it to completely gets sucked in and they're uh-huh. like or, or it's kind of like infinite chess you know that their, their life falls <laughs> apart because they get obsessed by it but then but they can't pass it on it's only the non-believers that that pass it on mm-hmm. this giant conspiracy theory um and um and so it is with with perpetual motion i mean it's 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 bullshit but but um but all these scientists who who knew it was bullshit and set out to disprove it did so much research that I mean even Leibniz, you know, and Benoit, and they they um they ended up falling down this down this rabbit hole. But um, but in the end, there is I don't know at the heart of the book there is this this kind of looping um, expanded um, moment of of, of 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 pure kind of kinesis mm-hmm. that. Um, that happens. Mm. It's, it seems to me that that sort of, um, I don't know, that sort of, that, that, that flip in a way from the sort of being a sort of a disbelieving rationalist to a sort of, uh, mm. to a, to an evangelist seems to, to capture something quite fundamental about the way that um, the human mind, the inquiring human mind tends to work. I think it's sort of, and, and, and seems to, to have a lot to do with what um, what the making of incarnation, at least how it resonated with me, is this kind of idea of the like, if you're if you're constantly uh, sort of narrowing down and looking for the essence. Ultimately, the sort of if 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 you're never if you're if you're never quite reaching it, it it sense that that sort of that point that you never quite reach takes on an almost sort of. Uh, sort of religious or sort of spiritual proportion to to the mind. Yeah, well, I mean, I was reading, you know, the father of cybernetics, Norbert Wiener, mm. quite a bit, and 
it's just it's amazing how he's basically a theologian he talks mm. about augustine and manichaeanism and whether the universe is just abandoned by god and running itself down or or whether um you know whether some kind of salvation is possible and he talks about um yeah he talks about science being a supreme act of faith which which is kind of amazing um mm. and and uh so i guess um i'm very delusional i think i think um machines i i'm very taken by the idea of desiring machine and desire itself as this kind of machinery and um and 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 as a as as this kind of embodiment of a whole set of yeah fantasies and imaginary kind of a narrative codes and ideologies of course mm. um you know think of kafka's writing machine i mean it's, mm, it's all these things they're they're kind of um yes so so i i don't know i wouldn't really make a big distinction between this idea of reason and desire i think they're completely mm. um intertwined mm. i wonder if um something again perhaps uh you will uh, you'll say it's it's always been thus but i wonder if something that perhaps has changed um is that sort of with the um the 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 technological progress and i use that term very advisedly um perhaps we have felt we're sort of in some way sort of approaching or sort of almost usurping the the positions of um of gods i mean there's one moment when um you're writing about the um the the filmmakers behind uh, behind incarnation um and you know this this fact that they're sort of essentially creating this um this universe from almost from from nothing perhaps gives them a kind of a certain uh yeah sort of godlike um godlike delusion but they're also really abased because they're just basically employees and they're in this feedback loop with investors and kind mm. of you know focus groups and they have to rewrite according to what the kind of producers and the money people say they can do with the script they i i think that the the narrative i write that they i mean the i whatever the narrative voice says that they're, <laughs> they're closed into a feedback loop with baseness and stupidity so, <laughs> so they're galley slaves just just yeah. like lowly coders in the in the less comfortable kind of armchairs mm-hmm. in the outer room so um yeah i mean this is freud's idea right technology turns us into gods prosthetic yes. gods but but you know if you've got a prosthesis it means you're an amputee we we have we are, we are crippled we are crippled by the we we are both godlike and and more than and less than um mm-hmm. we are we are subjected and and abjected um in front of these technologies but i guess yeah the novel ends with with this this kind of hallucinatory fugue state like vision of you know in the render farm of the big yeah 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 production company and and um and it's of a you know, kind of a lowly render wrangler who's one of the people that makes sure all the frames are not getting corrupted the millions of frames as they go through the server and he's kind of falling asleep and imagining london being zombie apocalypse and the the the, the phrases of the film are just of the frame that's being rendered are running through his head and mm-hmm. it's kind of fugue state but i think it's incredibly um i i hope it's it, again kind of poetic it's like this choral um symphony of of noise and cacophony and 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 i, I you know I, i don't see this as totally dystopian i see it as quite um 
quite quite kind of beautiful in a way mm. just um just just returning to the um the the sort of the industry of sort of uh, vfx and 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 sort of motion capture and things like that it's it, it was really interesting to me because uh, firstly i've never seen um this industry represented in in literature before and yet one of my um one of my oldest friends school friends kind of came up through that industry sort of even when we were at school sort of started working with uh, you know, companies like Jim Henson's were just, you know, just after the sort of the Jurassic Park moment when animatronics were were sort of displ- starting to be displaced by um, by sort of digital visual effects. And one thing that I've realized in talking to him about the way the industry has changed in those kind of 25 years since he first started, a little more since he first started working in them, is that sort of it felt like a really exciting really sort of liberating really creative industry back in the sort of the the mid 90s to the early 2000s and then as it kind of i guess matured as a as a sector and as an industry it's sort of um you know rather than create a new york skyscape you'd sort of download it for the you know yeah. from from a from a you know some sort of folder somewhere for the monster or the space alien or whatever to to destroy and it has always seemed to me to sort of the sort of the disillusionment that he and I know other people in the industry have felt. It seems to almost run in parallel with the sort of the the disillusionment, which I think a lot of people feel with the sort of the Internet and big mm-hmm. data um, generally. In fact, that sort of that sense that there was all this kind of there was this promise at the start and it seemed to sort of open out the world. And yet the more we sort of go along with it, it seems to to narrow things down. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, this is why I think all these subjects should be looked at in a really long durée lens of, you know, capitalism <laughs> and the relation of the artisan to power. Mm-hmm. You know, these people are artists, they're, or at least artisans, these coders and special effects designers, graphic designers. Um, and, and, and as and they have a relation to 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 power and and what's i mean what's really interesting doing the research and i hope this comes across in the book is that the same hard and software and codes and even the same personnel are used to make monsters and spaceships spin around in movies you know help map the neural systems of children with cerebral palsy Mm -hmm. um help bowlers bowl better in swingers in test matches and help drones in Afghanistan kill people better and detect mm-hmm. better, you know, better detect the type of movements that the algorithm will say you should strike because they're probably plotting something there. So there's mm-hmm. this, you know, all these things are verbunden, like we say here in Berlin. You know, they're all, <laughs> they're all, um, they're all in, intertwined. And, and mm-hmm. um, so I think, yeah, again, these, the, 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 this, this kind of utopian moment when new technologies come along. And there always is. The same thing happened with radio and the Internet. You know, people think, oh, this will liberate us or this will create autonomous spaces. And it, it, no, it, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't. It, 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 you know, it, it, it perpetuates. The default is that it just perpetuates an older order of mm-hmm. power, you know, 2.0, 3.0. Mm-hmm. Um, but so like, like Derrida says, you know, every advance in the postal system brings the police state a step closer. <laughs> every, every advance in informatics brings totality or fascism 
or creates new kind of possibilities for it. But at the same time, it creates new possibilities for rupture, for mm-hmm. for radical democracy, for all these, and for for the event of, you know, art and literature. So it's a kind of double-edged sword. You mentioned um, uh, sort of its, its relation to capitalism, but of course the, the sort of the... Uh, the work of Lillian Gilbreth, I think one of the reasons that it was so, um, had so influential was in fact, it sort of, it, it appealed to capitalists and so, you know, Soviet communists mm. equally, in fact, that sort of that yes. sort of efficiency, that mechanization. Um, and so, you know, I guess maybe, you know, it's since the Soviet communism has been sort of moribund, I guess, for the last uh, 30 odd years. Um, that's why perhaps the sort of the, you know, it's more uh, judicious to focus on capitalism. But is, do you think it's sort of underlying that is sort of like a, it's it's almost materialism in a way, which is the um, the sort of the the obsession that that leads to the the control you were just talking about. I don't know. I mean, you know, Lillian Gilbreth was a Republican, and she, mm-hmm. I mean, she was pretty right wing. She even flirted with eugenics at one point. But then she had a, she had a very, she was very intelligent. She studied literature and um, she, she spent her life also meeting with trade unionists. She's viewed as a feminist, um, I think rightly, who, who was one of the first industrialists to take women's traditional chores seriously enough to kind of really look at the way people move around kitchens and the ergonomics, the ballet, of, the choreography of a kind of domestic labor. Um, and and then Lenin, you know, admired her work. There was this whole Soviet Taylorist movement um, mm-hmm. where figures like Gastev, who, who's in my novel and I didn't invent, he was this kind of futurist poet, but left-wing futurist poet. And he he was put in charge, and, and avant-garde dance guy. And he was put in charge of the whole Soviet industry rationalization for a 10-year stretch before he was, of course, you know, killed. Um, but he really believed that, that technology could could liberate the worker from the shackles of of bourgeois oppression and, mm-hmm. and and off his very body and transform him in this kind of Donna Haraway, you know, cyber feminist, avant la lettre way, kind of radically transform the monad into a into a kind of techno cyber um, rhizomatic um, kind of field of potentialities and i think i think there's something really beautiful about that um i was reading a lot of agamben too you know his idea of bodies that are working but not working the kind of useless Mm -hmm. body the body released from usefulness but that is still doing some 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 task he sees that as a hugely potentially kind of revolutionary condition although it's always one that has to be held in this kind of suspension um abeyance Mm. yeah the way the way you, you describe that sort of um that sort of yes you know, sort of breaking sort of free of the sort of the shackles of the body that kind of that transcendence it, it again it, it has these kind of um sort of quasi-religious uh undertones in a way it's sort of it's, it's fascinating how this sort of uh you could sort of tack so far away down the down the, the kind of seemingly away from the religious and the spiritual you know, along the road of the kind of the rational and, and the mechanical. And yet there seems to be sort of like, I, I either, I don't know, either the line, I don't know if it's sort of the, the line swings back round towards the the sort of the religious and the, the spiritual, the transcendent, or if it's a sort of, I don't know, perhaps it's sort of a different type of 
of transcendence? I, I think, I mean, I'd, I would never, <laughs> transcendence is off the table. I mean, transcendence <laughs> is, is not possible, but I'm still very interested in that kind of line mm-hmm. of flight. I mean, I guess all my books involve things that crash. <laughs> I mean, dreams of flight that just come smashing down to earth like Icarus or whatever. I mean, everything falls. We're in mm-hmm. a gravitational universe of, you know, things falling. We are fallen. That is our condition. Um, and and um, so I guess, you know, I mean, uh, uh, towards the end, this whole kind of Tristan and Isolde sci-fi cheesy blockbuster space movie that's being made, they're kind of, you know, the spaceship is disintegrating and they're being pixelatedly torn apart and, and becoming light but it's it's not really a transcendent moment it's it, it, it it's this kind of surrender to a process in which there's no kind of liberation or again like like Agamben says there is salvation but not for us mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and at the heart of this book is yeah incarnation is, is flesh there's a lot of flesh even when they're having in the movie within the book, these kind of um, uh, exquisite sex in zero gravity scenes that they, you know, they, they've modeled it all with, with high tech light ray tracers and mm-hmm. in, in their CGI studios that when they put actual bodies in, they just, you know, they, they sag and kind of, you know, um, chicken skin, yuck flesh in all the wrong ways. And the directors are saying, this just looks like, you know, puppet porn show or like a butcher's yeah, yeah. <laughs> window during an earthquake with all the meat bumping into this is horrible <laughs> so there's this continual debasing i mean even rendering at the end i unpick that word in the render farm and the you know rendering of, of course has a religious you know render unto god course, that which yeah. render unto caesar monetary that which is caesar's but it's also when you you you, you press the chicken mulch in the mm. slaughterhouse the carcasses <laughs> just to get one last bit of fucking turkey twizzler or whatever it is <laughs> you know? or muck something you know muck chicken whatever so so there's something absolutely base and debased about about all this and i think i think you know I, yeah matter flesh is it's it's always very much part of the equation that seems to be a sort of a central tension to a lot of um a lot of the book is that sort of um, the the sort of the tension between the sort of the the traceability, predict, predictability, modelability of the universe, and then there's the sort of the unpredictability, perhaps of uh, of people in a way. Like there's yeah. sort of um, there's a moment where one character kind of comments that you know people don't do what they're meant to. That's um, right. Public space. That and they're doing. Um... PFUC, pedestrian flow in urban corridor, which I, I, I did not make up. This happens. They're, they're just analyzing <laughs> the flow of, of, pe- of pedestrians through, mm. a, through a, a shopping precinct, kind of like George Perrick did in 1972 or whatever in Paris, but they're not doing it as a poetry project. They're doing it as a kind of urban planning thing. And they have all these, you know, Markov chains and 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 so on that it's modeled along. And one of the people is saying, but they're not doing it right. You know, they're meant, they're meant to go along this path but they cut sideways past the bollards and then these benches that people were meant to congregate around they get taken by tramps which creates an exclusion zone and then people move here and then it gets offset so it's this continual kind of 
set of auto corrections and auto corrections and and yes yeah, swerves cinnamons mm. things di- digressing from from the kind of perfect route mm. straightway is always lost and that's yeah. that's the kind of that's the kind of beauty of it all but then at the same time things are very predictable there's there's also a sense that people are caught up in a giant mesh mm-hmm. um there's always a drone or an algorithm looking down on us and and like like oedipus you know our, our paths whatever we do to avoid the path that the that the algorithm god allotted us we're just actually falling into it even more yeah you know? yeah yeah yeah, so there's never a sense of freedom. There's there's a sense of knowing pattern or or something, but there's never any sense that that there's an outside that there's uh-huh. an escape from this space. We're we're in the grid. We're in that. We are enmeshed. You know, we're yeah. in. I wonder, is there um, maybe this is taking it too far in a way? But is there a sense of sort of like the the very act of kind of being a kind of living, unpredictable creature is in some way kind of resisting that control even if you can't escape it um i mean i think you know if, if sort of entropy is the, the sort of the ultimate destiny of the of the universe and of every sort of atom in our body is this sort of is life itself you know in, in the sense that humans are this bunch of atoms kind of held together for a certain period of time and keeping themselves alive by kind of pumping food into their mouths like is there do you see these two as sort of like perhaps in, in some way in opposition to each other? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a resistance and I guess it would take at least two forms. I mean, one would be, as you mentioned earlier, glitches. Mm-hmm. So to take the drone situation, you know, there's, there's the colonial gaze looking down onto the desert, trying to map everything, but there are glitches, things that just go weird and aporia mm-hmm. and blind spots. And, and, and they're actually they're called artifacts which is brilliant, right? Glitches are called artifacts. And they have very painterly names like mosaic blurring and vignetting and color ab- bichromatic aberration, color separation. I mean, it's like a Gerhard Richter painting or something, a blur. Um, so that's really interesting. These are sites of resistance that, that come from within the program itself. You know, the bug. Mm. Um, and, and I guess the other... F- I don't know the other. What would the other form of resistance be? Again, a kind of resistance from within of just um, the 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 weirdness of of desire, you know, mm. and the way it institutes these gaps. I mean, it's the same thing again. A kind of glitch, but not, but in a less technological sense, in a more kind yeah, of yeah, psychic yeah. sense or temporal sense. The moment of suspense, you know, before the thing has happened. That moment just before um, the interim. Um, you know, it, but this is very classical. This is what like Brutus talks about in Julius Caesar. You know, this, mm-hmm. it's it's during the interim, the hideous pause, that the yeah, yeah, yeah. man suffers the nature of an insurrection, that, a revolution. It's not actually the killing of the emperor; it's the pause mm-hmm. where where anything is possible. That is that is a, a radical moment of of um, non determinate becoming. And yet, there's also the um, the kind of the consideration which um, you go into uh, in a, a conversation between um, uh, I think it's Marky Fokin and when he goes to the, the when he's in um, Italy, I think at a, at a conference, and there's that sense of sort of even these bugs, even these glitches, like are they is is it are they, do they just appear like bugs or glitches to us simply because we don't quite have the 
all of the information, all of the data. And if we did, it's that kind of, is it um, Laplace's demon, that kind of idea that sort of, if you were to be able to predict the motion of every atom in the universe, then everything that happened would be, would be predictable. Yes, but, but yes, but, but you can't. And also, well, he's in two minds, you know, his, the the Lucy Diamond, who's, who's much more intuitive than him says, no, that, you know, that they're not just failings in the code. There's something else there, the Mm -hmm. little rips whether well, what was it that Leonard Cohen says they're the cracks where the light comes in, <laughs> they're the little rips that the or, or the glitch in the matrix or whatever mm-hmm. where, that that where, where another or you know an, another another possibility of everything kind of erupts in a new a new plane of possibility opens up. Um, yes, and then there's the whole thing about you know the dice and the. Mm-hmm. You know this. I mean, straight from Malame, I guess. You know, like in a in a pre-recorded universe. I mean, every, everything. You know, the dice will have a number, but there is still that moment where, when it hasn't taken on the number yet. Where mm-hmm. the event. It's why Badu loves Malame so much because that that's it, it, it's where the possibility of the event comes from. Even if the event never happens as such, the, the event's very possibility consists in it's not quite happening and it's remaining as kind of potential remaining in the glitch mm-hmm. in the buffer, buffer space. So this um, episode, which comes about halfway through the novel, is called The Girl with Kaleidoscope Eyes from the Beatles song. And in it, we see the character Lucy Diamond, who works for a motion capture company, Pantaray, who in turn are working for a CGI post-production outfit called Degree Zero. She's visiting the office of another company called Forensis, who, as their name suggests, is a kind of high-tech forensics outfit, because they need to produce for this movie a um, a giant holographic skull, which will be aligned with the sword, the space saber that maybe or maybe didn't kill the skull's owner. So Lucy Diamond is in Forensis's office. This, Webster has set the skull down now and moved to a computer, is a PBR made with our latest toy, a ferro laser scanner of one of these skulls, the third one from the right to be precise. We could provide you and your movie people double zero with, it's degree zero, she corrects him, degree zero with this very scan or one much like it. It's made with the same flyover method we use in the Pitt Rivers and British Museums, digitizing ethnographic artifacts. Artifacts? Statues, fetishes, or handmade bowls, what have you, he tells her without taking his eyes from the screen or fingers from the glide pad, moving about which they spin the radiant green cranium around, enabling multiple flyovers, each from a new angle of its wound crater, a detailed survey of its pleats and ridges. This is more or less exactly what the character does, Diamond says. She has a pharaoh scanner too. Version 20.0, Diamond smiles back. With screen-independent holographic render, hey, what's that? She can't help herself slipping back into ingenue mode. The printouts covering the wall behind the monitor are too intriguing. They seem to depict a kind of urban grid, an irregular one with arrows indicating various jagging trajectories across it. What's, oh, that, Sarajevo, 
answers Webster. 28th June, 1914. It's the route that Archduke Ferdinand's car took across the city. Collaboration with the history department at UCL. Apparently, the century since the assassination has produced a thousand theories as to why the anarchist Princip did it or why this particular event sparked off the biggest tinderbox in human history, but no one's ever thought to carry out a basic time and motion study. And? And what? And what has it revealed? It has revealed, Webster proudly announces, that it all boils down to a three-point turn. A three-point turn, like in a car. Indeed, not like, but actually in a car. The Archduke's motorcade, driving down Apple Quay here, he's over at the wall now, pointing out the road in question, turns right towards Franz Josef Street so as to deviate from the backup route to which it has, as a precaution, switched. A bomb had been thrown earlier and hit a secondary car. The pages of the speech Franz Ferdinand reads just prior to this, his assassination of flecked with blood, a double deviation back to its initially announced route, which isn't very safe given the day's threat level. So when the security implications of this dawn on the Archduke's bodyguards, they decide to switch back a second time, which re-rerouting necessitates a three-point turn. Now think of three-point turns. What do they all, no matter how swiftly or deftly they're executed, entail? Diamond thinks back to her driving test. Angles and distances, protocols and sequences, mirror, signal, maneuver. Toggling between forward and reverse, she tries. Well, yes, but that dictates another basic quality, that every three-point turn contains at, as its pivot point, a static moment. Here in Apple Key, this moment takes place right by where Princip is standing. So naturally, he pulls his pistol out and offs his sitting duck duke quarry. What are the chances? Diamond murmurs. Chance, says Webster, is a can of worms this project has pried open. The more you look at it, the more you start to see a sort of correspondence of symmetry almost, not only in the layout of the streets, the doubled routes, the switchbacks and retracings and so on, but also in the larger field of the event's contingencies. Take just one sample area, for example, the lead actor's titles. On one side, you've got Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke. On the other, Princip, the anarchist. Archduke, like Princip, means Prince, from arc or arche, prime authority, but also curve plotted in space, and ducks or leader, plotter of a route. The Archduke's people plot a route through space. The anarchists launch their counterplot, a plot against arch order, against structure. But their plotting is defective, as you might expect. They don't believe in arcs or arches, that's the whole point. But here's the twist, which perhaps isn't such a twist after all. An arc comes to their aid, a double arc, embodied in a three-point turn. It's like a kind of doubling up, a folding, and the street towards which the Archduke is heading doubles his own name, halfway at least. 
Franz Josef is his uncle who's dispatched him off to Sarajevo like a double to die in his place. So are you saying, Diamond begins, but Webster cuts her off. I'm not saying anything, just tracing out a set of lines, a fracture network. That's all I do. It's it's funny actually when while reading I did um I did look up the word glitch because it suddenly struck me that sort of it feels like a very a sort of a concept I think because of we you know we live in the sort of the information age it's a kind of yeah it's 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 a concept it's sort of an idea which has very much sort of infiltrated our our minds and our art and our literature. I was I was in dialogue with um this artist Ro- Rosa Menkman the other day on the BBC and she she said that it came from an old Hebrew word, which means it's like a snag within a flow. So you've got, you've got like in the wind tunnel in, in my novel, you know, you've got this flow of, of wind and smoke making a certain smooth pattern, and then you've got the object. So in, in this book, it, you know, the bobsleigh, which is, which is glitching it, which is mm. causing it to kink and snag. And that provides the, the interruption, but also the, um, the, the information. I mean, that's, that's, that's the artifact. That is the object, you know, the thing. Mm. <laughs> we are so all I think there's a... in the flow of, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um I, I was wondering while, while reading this, because of course the idea of like glitching and bugging um, uh, has sort of makes a sort of, sort of a memorable uh, sort of impact upon on Satin Island. I think it particularly, um, there's a sort of, I, I remember very distinctly the sort of, there's a moment with, where a screen kind of freezes and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what occurred to me, just obviously thinking back to sort of to Remainder and then sort of through Men in Space and Sea and Satin Island, that perhaps more than any other novelist I can think of, you're almost somebody who's kind of uh, concerns your project, not that I can necessarily define particularly what that is. Oh, me neither. Seems, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> seems to be um, sort of impacted upon and sort of expanded by technological developments in a way like when you look at remainder which you know it it wasn't sort of pre-internet but there was that sort of the the developments we've had over the last 10 or 15 years weren't really sort of on the horizon and yet there seems to be a sort of uh sort of sort of um sort of connecting thread between all of your works and like it's almost like the more sophisticated the more elaborate and the more sort of baffling sometimes this technology becomes or has become over the last 15 20 years it seems very much kind of grist to the mccarthy mill in a way that i i don't find with it with any other novelist right well hmm i wonder yeah i, I guess there's a set of concerns that i keep coming back to and, and i don't really know what they are in advance i mean but but then i guess when you think back I mean, like remainders about these kind of repeatable actions of bodies in a certain mm. configuration, which is, of course, exactly the world that Gilbreth's um, research opened up and that gets kind of compounded in the motion capture industrial processes that, that surround us today. Um, so, so I guess there's a continuity there and, and um, yeah, repetition and a certain relation to kind of mediation and um, temporality and grids and maps and mapping. and But these things are kind of intuitive. I mean, there's just a few, you know, 
I don't know, there's just a few things you kind of worry at and pick at from all these different mm-hmm. angles. And then, but it's true, the technology, the more you look into technology, the more it, so I guess, you know, in Remainder, it's a, it's a weird psychopath poet Monke who's doing all these having the world running as a his little world running as a repeating set of actions in which people are being killed eventually and and then and then by by this book that's just the world we live in and and it is the way it's not some sci-fi I mean this is the world we live in this is this is literally happening drones are running these 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 kind of holding patterns and yeah. shooting down their missiles and and forensics is is uh you know, and, and uh, urban studies uh, and, and uh, sports software is analysing, you know, temporal patterns in, in premiership football games and all these things are being correlated and, and we really we really do live in this world. Um, so, yes, I guess, I guess you're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple of things. We don't have too much time left, but one thing um, I'd just like to come back to... Um, uh, when you said earlier that you would sort of you would not have any truck with um, uh, transcendence, um, it seems to me that they're sort of. I, I, I see exactly what you're what you're what you're saying, and I think sort of certainly in your in your work, there's not this kind of um, sort of I guess sort of space to be maybe as you said earlier, sort of outside of mm. the system, outside you know, outside of the way things are, and yet there is also this kind of presence. Um, I think really I, I kind of associated with 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 all of your novels, and again, but I think it's particularly present here of this sort of perhaps let's say this is feeling that might be confused with transcendence in a way. Um, and the, the, what the particular moment I'm thinking of, and I, I really sort of snagged on this, I think because um, it's a sensation which I remember experiencing, particularly as a child, and. Uh, had never really been able to sort of fully articulate or found articulated anywhere. And yet when I was reading this passage, it felt like the closest I've ever found to this sensation being articulated. And this is a moment where um, uh, one of the characters, you say he's dredging up some deep sedimented memories of childhood meningitis, Mm. Um, how the room, his little bedroom seemed to fill with a voluminous expanse that simultaneously emptied it ate it away as though some cosmic road digger was scooping out whole chunks of theirness, theirness, filling them with not their craters. And there was something about that sort of, yeah, that sense of both an an expanse within a sort of a limited space that Mm. was, as I say, an incredibly familiar feeling to me. I didn't uh, suffer from meningitis as a kid. So like, I, you know, I don't know if that's a, you know, was a particular stimulus for you or for somebody, you know, and that's, where that description came from but yeah there were that's the feeling i guess in a way that sort of for me i would say is that sort of feeling that might be confused with with transcendence mm. yeah but it's not it's, it's not tra- it's exactly the opposite of of getting out it's like getting more and more in it's mm. it's it's kind of embedding yourself so much in a in a given situation and time that it kind of expands beyond all measurable limits Mm -hmm. so i mean i guess in you know in in remainder he gets obsessed with just like the moment at which you order a cup of coffee Mm -hmm. (laughs) and all the networks that that bear on that or or the moment at which someone is shot in the street so much so that he hires the street and reenacts it again and again and again just to kind of try and get that that instant um 
and this is all over this book too completely this this kind of infinity worming its way into into the micro microsecond um and this is i guess kind of in a way lots of my characters do this kind of thing just like unpicking the 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 what's at work in a telecommunications network or mm-hmm. um yeah reenacting a very common street death of someone who wasn't famous i mean these are the kind of or just or just this instance of you know watching someone go by in a shopping precinct and treating this as though it were the most important thing ever and bringing all mm-hmm. these massive technologies and analyses and observations to bear on it these these are the kind of this is these are the practices proper to poetry. I mean, these are the forms of resistance mm. proper to poetry, <laughs> of 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 elevation of minute things to to, to enormous proportions, um, and and yeah. So I think I think um, poetry would not be a transcendence of like life and capitalism mm-hmm. and stuff. It would be a total immersion to the point that. Any second within that becomes unmanageably giant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say that would be a perfect place on which to to leave it. But I do have one more question, which I which I'm going to ask, and is more for my personal sort of curiosity than uh, probably for the interest of our listeners. So if uh, and it's possibly completely uh, irrelevant. So so we may cut it out if it, <laughs> depending on what you say. But I noticed um, there was one uh, in, in one of the scenes. There was a, a character who was second technician uh, Roussel um and I was just I, I just wanted to, to ask if that was a, a a sort of a little nod to Raymond Roussel and of course, uh, Locus, of course, Solis. Locus Solis of course I mean the you know they're they're staging they're they're reenacting they're kind of staging an artificial scene and making something speak again I mean so much of this book is about machines that reanimate other histories through this kind of very very labored simulation which is of course what novel writing is mm-hmm. so in 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 Roussel's Locus Solis you get this amazing landscape where where this character has created these crackpot machines that kind of bring history back to life and make dead people uh Danton's head his lips move and kind of re-speak his old speeches but it's uh yeah. I think like yeah so, so much of of this book like Roussel's book is is kind of a, a metaphor for the for the act of of writing you know creating mm. artificial worlds and making yeah, yeah, yeah. making shit happen in does them. it would does it sort of tack close a little bit to the kind of the the pataphysical the kind of you know the the science of imaginary solutions or is that a little bit too uh... <laughs> well well yes but but again these things are neither pataphysical nor metaphysical these are mm. these are quotidian these are w- mm. You know, we are living inside these processes. Every every moment we walk down a street, or click through a website, or um, you know, choose to buy one thing over another, this is all being tracked and recorded, and and algorithms are at, at work. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so so um, you know, things are this this is this is uh, this is one thing that fascinates me. You, you, you know, the way that yesterday's avant garde becomes today's just marketing yeah um or, or whatever. we're all pataphysicians now yeah, we're exactly <laughs> we're all bloody pataphysicians now 
uh, Tom McCarthy, that is unfortunately all we've got time for. Um, I just say to our listeners that, of course, The Making of Incarnation is available um, in the Shakespeare and Company uh, bookstore, obviously online from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, from your local independent bookstore, wherever you are. Um, yeah, all that remains for me to say is, Tom McCarthy, thanks for joining us today. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Fryman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading, and thanks again for listening.